Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers in the field of eating disorders who were part of building the modern foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. I'm collaborating with multiple eating disorder organizations and communities, and our goal really is to capture a narrative history about how the field grew up in modern day from the leaders who were part of making it happen. So it's really uh, aimed to capture the story of the building our foundation in a way that doesn't typically get recorded in our academic publications. So today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Paul Garfinkel, who is professor in the Department of Psychiatry at University of Toronto and staff psychiatrist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Dr. Garfinkel obtained his medical degree from the University of Manitoba and following an internship at the Toronto Western Hospital, did a psychiatric residency at the University of Toronto. He's had an exemplary career in Toronto, continuing his training. In 1982, he was appointed psychiatrist in chief at Toronto General Hospital. And in 1990, he became chair of the Department of Psychiatry at University of Toronto, founding president and chief executive officer of the Center of Addiction and Mental Health. So Dr. Garfinkel, we're thrilled to have you here. You are uh, a researcher, a clinician, an administrator who has a long history with eating disorders, multiple publications and awards, including uh, being elected to the Fellowship in the Royal Society of Canada. And uh, we're here to talk about that exemplary journey you've been on. I wonder if we could begin uh, at the beginning. How did you get to medicine, to psychiatry, and then to eating disorders? Well, thank you for having me. This is a, a real pleasure. Well, mine is um, an immigrant experience, quite typical of North America. Uh, my parents came um, relatively young uh, from uh, Poland and Ukraine. Um, my mother was an infant and um, went through public school, graduated high school, became a legal secretary and a piano teacher. My mm-hmm. dad came in his 20s without an education and um, became uh, an upholsterer. Um, and what they did is emphasize education for us. I mean, my older brother became a lawyer and a judge. My younger brother became a physician. Education was portable, if you in the 40s, that was an important consideration. Education meant respect. Education meant you belong. Mm-hmm. And then for a physician, it was about helping, which was quite important. It wasn't in my frame of reference to go away. And uh, that is uh, something I regret. Uh, uh, after high school, we just automatically went to the University of Manitoba, which was excellent clinical training. But there's something about the experience of college away. Mm-hmm. I loved medical school. I um, liked being a GP. I could have been a respirologist or an endocrinologist or a psychiatrist. I picked psychiatry 
very hesitantly, very hesitantly, because mm. people looked down on it at the time, and I was sensitive to that. I wanted to belong. Mm -hmm. um, but I had some experiences in medical school, and there's one in particular I'll, I'll talk to you about. Mm -hmm. One experience involved a um, woman from a Mennonite community outside Winnipeg. We used to go there to Winkler, and it involved a woman with a severe depression in a very controlling environment, husband, extended family, uh, religious community. And I saw, in this, and this was probably 66, the good and bad of ECT. And, and she responded well to ECT. And I remember saying to the staff doctor, but we haven't done anything. She's mobile. She's not almost catatonic. He said, she'll be back. Mm -hmm. um, that this was a very temporary fix. And he emphasized her environment didn't permit more. And for you know, a youngster, I was eager to get to the bottom of it. So I was, I was very disappointed. Around the same time, I was doing physical exams two nights a week in a mental hospital to, just to earn some extra money. But it, it was a um, rather long stay unit. And so uh, business was slow, you might say. Um, and gave me a lot of chance to speak to the staff and, and the patient. There was a woman there from the Southern United States named Lisa. She wasn't a patient. She was a, a we call them a licensed practical nurse. You probably call them nursing assistant, or something like that. And one day we were talking about all, all the scars on her arms. Mm -hmm. And she uh, mentioned how ill she had been had several mental hospital admissions for auditory hallucinations. And what I was struck by was she stopped her meds. You know, we were giving high doses of phenothiazines in the 1960s. She stopped them because of the sluggish feeling in the weekend and developed insight and equanimity to her hallucinations, which really impressed me. So, mm -hmm. you know, she actively hallucinated. And, and that taught me one size doesn't fit all. I mm -hmm. was so taken by that. Mm -hmm. Then the next year, I had an episode that threw me into psychiatry. A colleague and I were clerks, forcer students um, on um, a veterans hospital. We were assigned a patient who was mute. I'll call him Ben. Uh, ben had fought in Europe and um, came back from a terrible battle, hadn't been able to speak in 20 years. Well, two young, um, enthusiastic, blustering medical students, uh, we're going to fix him. We're going to fix Ben. And we spoke to the attending staff let us give him truth serum, sodium Hamilton. He said, fine, go give it a try. And we assembled everything. My friend Cal, who was interested in psychiatry, but became the head of the College of Family Practice, nudged me and said, go ahead, Paul, give him the intravenous Hamilton. Too late, I realized that I had never held a syringe before or gotten into a vein. And I 
I'm a tad clumsy and I have a visual motor problem. So I started to do what I had seen Dr. Kildare do or other doctors. Pretty soon, my friend had to leave the room. He was giggling so hard. It was like being in grade four. And the reason that was is I kept missing the vein. I was all over the arm and he started to talk for the first time in 20 years. How wonderful you guys are, you're great doctors. And then he started, for the next six hours, he spoke about the trauma of war. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't last. So Cal and I were, were unbelievably excited. This was an amazing moment. Cal stayed up during the night and practiced on oranges. He's going to give it the needle the next day. And sure enough, he did. He got into the vein and Ben couldn't speak. Hmm. So we had two trials in two days. One, nothing, no medicine got into the vein, but mm -hmm. he could speak. The second time, all the medicine got into the vein, to the brain, but he couldn't speak. Mm -hmm. It knocked me over. Mm -hmm. I said, this is an amazing field. Mm -hmm. So I came to Toronto and did my internship with an eye to a residency in Sepak. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary when you describe that, Paul, where we were as a field in the 1960s in terms of the medications that you mentioned, in terms of ECT, in terms of how little we know, and also where we were in terms of history, right? And the really the beginnings of acknowledging the trauma of war and the mental health implications of trauma. So uh, the, the traumatic impl implications of war on our mental health. So, you know, I think we can easily lose sight of how much has happened in this window of time. So for me, it's really quite dramatic to hear you recount that entry into a field that was so early, so much really in its infancy. Mm -hmm. So the excitement about entering this, emerging this nascent field must have been extraordinary. You get to Toronto and what's happening, what's happening there? Well, I, I did a rotating internship at a good hospital where you had lots of opportunity for experience. But then I just applied for the residency in psychiatry and was accepted. Mm -hmm. Not knowing Toronto, but these days, you know, people run around and they select every rotation for the rest of their lives. Um, I just applied and I was assigned to a clinical investigation unit. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing 11-bed unit where the two staff could admit people according to their academic interests. Mm -hmm. The chief of the service, Harvey Stancer, was interested in the biology of serotonin and depression and so on. Um, the second staff was Harvey Moldovsky, who was interested in mind-body problems. And so when an occasional person with anorexia came through, they would be referred to Moldovsky. A couple months in, he decided to go to San Francisco to study with Dement. 
uh, sleep medicine. And he came back uh, mm -hmm. a year later and became probably the first sleep medicine doctor in uh, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Stancher said to me, and you know, it, it, it's rather strange because I was a junior resident. There are a couple mm -hmm. of other more senior residents on the floor. But he said, look, Moldowski's going away. Maybe we could try and keep the referral base up while he's gone. Um, would you take on these people? Well, I was interested in endocrinology. So here, mm -hmm. the, all these theories were this hypothalamic pituitary problem, this and that. So I said I would try. And it, it didn't go very well clinically because we didn't know how to form a proper team that could be cohesive following a theoretical frame. Mm -hmm. But it hooked me in, that's for darn sure. You've written, yeah, you've written about the, this entry into eating disorders and the profound impact that the work of Hilda Brook had on your thinking about eating disorders and the ways in which another piece of the history is this was a time when psychoanalysis was the only game in town, essentially, in terms of psychotherapeutic understandings of mental health and mental illness. Hilda Brook challenged that idea. And I wonder if you can talk about how you how that all came together for you and your interest then in eating disorders. Well, I, I was kind of desperate to understand uh, as a precursor to treating. Mm -hmm. So um, I did uh, a little digging and Mickey Stunkard and Park Blinder had written on operant conditioning. And so we did too, did a, a trial and a paper. And it was very... Uh, unsatisfying because they had all the problems you can imagine after dis discharge. Then I came across a paper that Brooks wrote, Hilda Brooks wrote the year before in 1969 um, called Hunger and Instinct. And that paper described her central thesis that these were people who felt helpless or ineffective and um, that defiance was a, a veneer um, to protect themselves. Um, this helplessness went with two other problems, problems in body image and problems in recognizing internal feelings. Well, it just hit home to me. Now, look, um, Bruch didn't have all the answers, but she certainly was able to convey an understanding that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. Because this was an academic unit, I did a small study um, on hunger and fullness before a standard meal, after standard fast. And I found, um, paradoxically, the anorexics had good hunger awareness. They weren't anorexic, but they had terrible fullness. Either they were stuffed or they could eat and eat and eat. And we, we know now that there's a delay in gastric emptying that goes with starvation. But it highlighted to me one of the prevalent, you were just mentioning the medicines, treatments from 67 uh, from Daly and Sargent in Britain 
was insulin bed rest and chlorpromazine. That was a trio that put on weight. Mm-hmm. But it highlighted to me how cruel that was. These people didn't need to be hungrier from insulin or chlorpromazine. They needed structured weight restoration with good eating. Mm-hmm. The important thing to me at this point that I didn't formulate like this was the timing. When do people benefit from psychotherapy mm-hmm. of this kind, if they do? When do you treat the starvation and when do you start the more insightful psychotherapy? You know, psychotherapy is, is a learning experience. Starving animals don't learn. Starving children, if you send a kid to school, mm-hmm. hungry, learning is terrible. Mm-hmm. So why would we expect these starving people with anorexia to suddenly profit from psychotherapy? Your observation there and the recognizing the need for essentially what we would call today, right, more person-centered care, about what does somebody need at this moment, is dramatic in that it really, at the time, flew in the face of the standard practice, right, where the idea was that as that we need to advance understanding and then weight gain would naturally follow. You, you're running a unit that's not happening. So you talk about then turning to other options. How did that evolve? Who were the, who were the people and how did you build this idea of a staged care kind of intervention with a significant focus on eating behavior to begin? Well, I, I mentioned stunkard and uh, awkward conditioning, mm-hmm. and it, it frightened me because in '74, Bruch wrote an article in JAMA uh, saying behavior modification was going to be harmful, was going to create a suicide crisis. So we did a follow-up study of uh, the first forty-some patients and found it wasn't terrible and it wasn't good. It was like all the other treatments going on at this time, people gained weight, but they relapsed or they stayed too thin. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I turned to um, Gerald Russell and Arthur Crisp in the UK. And I spent um, time visiting with them. Um, Russell um, was in some ways a theoretical. As I said, he believed in a hypothalamic pituitary problem. He was interested in the hormones, but he was able to recruit very good nursing staff Mm -hmm. and build a team and help in the weight restoration. Arthur uh, had a more um, conceptual frame. He felt uh, these were adolescents who were terrified of the challenges ahead and had to retreat to an earlier uh, stage. Um, that's sometimes so. I mean, uh, um, and he too emphasized this structured weight restoration to a good level before you engaged in the real psychotherapy. Uh, we, um, at this point, I had a colleague from uh, the United States, David Garner, Join, uh, join me. He was 
getting a PhD at York University. And he switched over, he stayed at York, but he switched over to the eating disorders and helped in evaluating. He developed a method for developing uh, body image measurement or helplessness measurement, the symptoms of anorexia. But he also uh, knew cognitive therapy. So we had some training for the staff, not like proper cognitive behavioral therapy, but the staff would be able to identify conceptual distortions. Well, that's your all or nothing thinking or you're personalizing again. Mm -hmm. So during the weight restoration period, there was a real cognitive component to develop. So it was Bruch, who really um, was wonderful. She visited us. She was thrilled when um, I presented our experimental findings in 1976 in Bethesda at a small invitation-only meeting, maybe 30 or 40 people. Mm-hmm. Most people were presenting on endocrine findings, but I talked about her tripartite model and what we had been able to experimentally study. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gave me a, a big kiss after I came down off the podium. Then two years later, I presented on a um, paper and pencil questionnaire um, for the symptoms of anorexia. And she came up to me, this was at an APA. And she came up to me, I thought she was gonna give me a big hug and she said, you're now on the wrong track. You're wasting your time. <laughs> uh-huh. This is not what paper and pencil does. So she was uh, an extraordinary thinker and actually really, for me, as I think about my entry into the field of eating disorders or where I think the beginning of the modern day study of eating disorders, the starting point would be, I, I frequently go back to Hilda Brook and yeah. her role in helping really transition the field from the field of psychoanalysis to a more nuanced theoretical frame and Um, moving into more particular theoretical understanding of of the disorder of eating disorders and and how we go about it. Uh, You had the the joy and privilege of knowing her personally. I only know her from stories and and her scholarly work, Uh, but clearly she's had a, a tremendous influence on the whole field. And so I, I appreciate your bringing her into your interview since we can't interview her directly. Thank you for sharing her a bit you of would her have story. Liked to, you would have loved to speak with her. You know, when, uh, in the 70s, she moved from uh, New York to Houston where one of her ex-students was now the chair. And she felt um, New York wasn't a place for a single woman, el- single elderly woman mm-hmm. in, in that period. So she bought a Rolls Royce and she said, <laughs> I'm not going to kowtow to the uh, Houston oil men in their Cadillacs. And she drove <laughs> her it was just a um, Character. believer, yes. Yeah. In that period, there was one other big influence. Yeah. And that was Herb Weiner, who at the time was at the Montefiore. Mm-hmm. And... Um, her, so this was probably 76, 77. 
um, he was eager, he was building a team interested in mind-body problems. And he had some good people. You know, Tim Walsh was there, mm -hmm. Sig Ackerman, Myron Hofer. But what I learned from him um, was then in his 1977 book, The Psychobiology of Human Disease. What my book and what the contribution I'm hoping to discuss is really taking Herb's model. Yeah, let's go into this. Your this big idea. I am yeah. as we move into it. Um, because I think it's really to just punctuate it. Um, if you can start with how you got to this big idea and, and how it crystallized for you. Following what Herb did, I tried to make up a list of what are the risk factors for anorexia? We didn't have bulimia as a syndrome at this point yet. Um, what are the risk factors? And there are, you know, problems in autonomy, individuation, self-mastery, self-esteem, conceptual disturbances. I, I listed a whole bunch and explained how I thought they could arise and why you had to individualize. Now, I looked at this chapter uh, over the weekend, and you mentioned trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 35% of the anorexic patients that we see as a history of trauma. Trauma isn't mentioned as a risk factor. It tells you 40 years ago, we weren't thinking like that. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there were risk factors in the individual, in the family, and in the culture. Mm -hmm. So Garner and I studied this with the questionnaire. We studied models. We studied um, uh, ballerinas. Um, we studied Miss Sweden contestants. We studied Playboy Centerfold. We did just a whole bunch of different studies showing who was vulnerable. And it, one half of it was pressures to be thin, but equally or even more important were pressures to perform, to live up to others' expectations rather than one's own. Mm -hmm. A pleasing performing was part of this um, recipe for the culture. Mm -hmm. One of the important parts of the cycle, probably the most important is the starvation syndrome. There are other things, you know, the family changes, the girl is left behind at school, she's socially not connected. Um, but there's a starvation phenomenon that locks the person in. Mm -hmm. What we did see was how different aspects of the biology responded. Growth hormone responded to a good carbohydrate load. Many of the other features responded to weight gain, but at different points, mm -hmm. some very slowly. As I said, muscle, six or eight weeks, but, um, LH and estrogen much more slowly. Mm -hmm. So it's led to a lot of research, but not a lot of understanding, except for one thing. Um, the hypothalamic pituitary theories quickly died out between mm -hmm. 1976 and Bethesda to the mid 80s, everywhere, people were accepting these were secondary starvation effects. 
right? Major milestone in the field, right? Moving anorexia nervosa out of the class of endocrine disorders and into a different category. And so you are in these early years, a major focus of your work was on differentiating the and, and articulating the range of risk factors, moving away from a singular idea about what puts somebody at risk for anorexia nervosa, expanding and developing a sophistication around multiple risk factors. And therefore, it sounds like also, as you describe it, that shaped your thinking both in terms of stages of treatment, we need to address these different risk-related factors at different stages of treatment and, and also separating out what puts people at risk from what maintains the disorder because your conversation around this, the starvation syndrome, right, is a maintenance factor, right, rather than a, a um, etiologic risk factor. So as I hear you talking about this big idea, your, your contribution in terms of putting the different, uh, cutting the diamond to have all the facets revealed um, is really critical uh, to, and, and was foundational in terms of then subsequent work that many of us pursued in looking at risk factors uh, across bulimia nervosa and staging treatment interventions and work that you did that informed the relapse prevention trial that we conducted, for example. Uh, I wonder as you, you know, so your contribution has impacted so many different further journeys uh, in trying to understand and address the needs of individuals with eating disorders. As you sit here today, uh, what, what questions do you think are most important for the field to d- lean into? What, what questions remain open in a way that you think we could really advance our field if we could just answer this question? So many of the good things that happened came as a bit of a surprise mm-hmm. um, and have been largely beneficial to bulimia nervosa. I mean, cognitive behavior therapy, DBT, I mean, mm-hmm. Marshall Lenahan's work is wonderful for uh, a group of bulimics who have trouble with impulse control, uh, affect regulation. I still think the prevention trials are hugely important and um, hopefully deal at the right age, nine and 10 year olds, not 14 year olds, and deal with the right issues, self-worth, the body, but being authentic, being real. I hope that has an impact. So you think one of the opportunities for the field going forward is to actually go back in time developmentally and focus on prevention. What what would you prioritize in terms of prevention strategies today? I believe the thinness phase is beginning to uh, melt a bit. You get some more shapely women as influencers. Mm-hmm. But the other half of the problem, being real, being yourself, 
has only gotten worse in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. These days, parents program their kids, well-meaning, good parents, program their kids, you've got to go to the right school, you've got to go to the right kindergarten in Georgia, mm-hmm. um, or your life is going to be impaired. People forget what life is about. It's not a race. It's not a set of problems to be solved. It's a set of experiences to be realized. Mm-hmm. And they also forget what university is about. Mm-hmm. It's not about, well, I can now secure a high paying job. It's about learning to be a good citizen and learning to understand people. Mm-hmm. So really, as I hear your comments, Paul, it, it sounds to me that a piece of the prevention strategies are very specific around the thin ideal and changing, equipping young people to understand what that's about and maybe to really change that. Uh, And we're seeing some of that at a cultural level, but also it's a very uh, broad, non-specific strategy of thinking about the cultural issues around self and creating or or returning to a developmental integrity and authenticity that uh, is really under siege with the pressures that young people grow up with today and adding in the social media uh, factors. As you also reflect over the course of your career, is there and the efforts that you made and the contributions, significant contributions in terms of evolving our thinking uh, regarding the multi-determined nature of the eating disorders and the differentiation of treatment strategies. In doing that work, was there anything in particular that surprised you? Well, pretty much everything. Seventy-nine on, it was like a series of surprises every six months. I mean, that's part of what made it fabulous. We uh-huh. didn't know it was kind of bulimia. When I first started treating people with bulimia, I was worried, worried, worried because of the chaos. But you know, there's a way of dealing with it. There's a way of understanding and dealing with it that's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, another surprise is why people aren't more interested and funding um, in this area in Canada at least is, is a small percent of the treatment and research budgets mm-hmm. that's been very hard to move I've put a lot of effort over the years but that's hard to move mm-hmm. it does make you examine yourself treating anorexia um, mm-hmm. It's very different from training somebody with depression or psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a need for tenacity. You're going to hang in there. You know, there are people I knew as teenagers who are now in their 50s. A, a medical professor uh, who wins all kinds of teaching awards who tore my ward apart when he, uh-huh. was, when he was 12. <laughs> right. Um, you have to hang in, though. Mm-hmm. And it requires a real humility. You know, we don't have all the answers. Well, it speaks to uh, 
I think, a life truth that I've observed time and again, which is that some of the greatest rewards require the greatest work, right? And so for me, my patients with anorexia nervosa have been among the most challenging and uh, and certainly among the most rewarding to work with and to know and to celebrate, as you say, when they go on and take their place in the world. One of the advantages of knowing about starvation is in trying to help that significant group of people who are going to be chronically ill. Mm-hmm. Whether we like it or not, there are many patients who um, not on death's door, but not well, and carry features of the illness through different life stages. And it's our job to help them live lives of dignity and mm-hmm. meaning in spite of the illness. And knowing about what is starvation really helps, and it helps the complicate, prevent the complications. I, I fully agree with you. And I, uh, I think it's a, a particular mystery that I've pondered at times related to our ideals for individuals with anorexia nervosa, that we have this very fixed ideal about weight restoration and where someone should be in their weight uh, for in the recovery of anorexia nervosa, it's very important to get out of a state that puts us at daily risk in terms of being able to function. But at the same time, it's a little bit of a mystery sense, actually a very large percent of the population struggles (laughs) with weight regulation in one way or another. So to, to embrace that, we're all struggling in one way or another with this idea of how do we self-regulate and, uh, and to allow for that uh, in, the, in the recovery with, for someone with anorexia nervosa. I was uh, very early on preoccupied with when is it enough? Mm-hmm. What is enough? When is it enough? And that's why I did um, the hunger satiety work Brooke was talking about it, but it fed my own preoccupation. Uh, what's enough to eat and drink? How much alcohol is enough? How much money? How mm-hmm. much? In every area. It's important for us to keep in mind in recovery. What's mm-hmm. enough? What's enough? That's right. And certainly the research that you all did at Toronto, that we had the opportunity to collaborate uh, in Toronto and Columbia looking at weight restoration and what's enough to get someone into the range that is going to predict longer term recovery is a critical question and a critical advance that we've made uh, in terms of thinking about at least setting reasonable targets in in the course of treatment. Exactly. Uh, Last question for you, Paul. Words of reflection or advice to future generations in the field of eating disorders that you can share? I'd start by uh, saying about education. Um, Don't uh, be seduced by um, the medical science entry 
to these fields. I mean, that's what I did. I was um, science undergrad, um, study the humanities, mm-hmm. understand people, and then go into psychiatry, psychology, social work. Learn about people, learn from the classics what people are about. The second point, the joys and the problems are gonna be greater, both are gonna be greater than you could ever imagine. That's part of life, that's what life's about. Mm-hmm. And ride with it. Keep in mind how beautiful it is to be able to help somebody at a critical time in life. And if, if that's harder, good. It makes the satisfaction grow. Mm-hmm. Don't run away from hard things is, is my message. Well, certainly that it fits because you entered a field at a time that it was very barely developed uh, and was really challenging. And as you said, at a certain point, messy. And you leaned into it and leaned into it over the years in a way that really contributed at so many levels, including the particular ways in which we discussed today, your focus on helping the field understand the multi-determined nature of eating disorders and the need to think about stages of care that really became, we, I really think are, are the roots of what we call today person-centered care. And understanding etiology and maintenance and how to respond and meet people where they are so that, in fact, we can be part of their journey and healing. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Paul. Really salute you for all that you've contributed to the field, and thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.